Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode 9, All That Josh. Written by John McNamara, Jay Gard, and Alex Raymond, and directed by James Conway. IMDb gave this a 9. The synopsis is Quentin, Katie, and Alice try to convince an old friend to return home. And we were right. The old friend is Josh, of course. Mm -hmm. It's good to see him back and to find out what happened to him. Yeah, this episode was really fun in many ways, but one of the most is seeing a lot of our questions answered and a lot of our predictions come true. Also, I believe one of the main questions we've been asking since the beginning of season two is going to be answered next episode, and we'll go through that later. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about that and also some information that Gamble and McNamara themselves have given us about what we can expect yet to come, and we will talk about that, of course, in the spoiler section. First, we get to see another example of a pocket world, which is cool. I really liked that the first time around when Umber took Quentin to that incredibly boring pocket world he was (laughs) trying to create. This one is a lot more exciting, although has some pretty dire consequences as well. Well, I think that's a metaphor for when you kind of hide away from things that you're worried about and kind of create your own reality in your head. Of course, you can't do that in real life. Eventually, whatever you're trying to run from will catch up with you. And perfect for Josh. This is a place where the party never stops. It's all fun. You can't talk about anything serious or the crowd's going to turn on you. But he is the center of attention, the life of the party, which is completely opposite from the way he's been treated in real life. And we will go into that was the deepest part of this episode. And I thought the best connections being made Josh has been on the outskirts this whole time and feels very left out, and it's going to be detrimental to the entire quest itself if they don't figure out how to fix that. Yeah, but we here at CKC did not forget him, and we've been (laughs) asking every week, hashtag, where is Josh? Absolutely, and the creators talked about this when they were asked how did they come up with the idea that this was going to be about that. They said part of it was just an accident. They realized they hadn't had Josh in a bunch of episodes, It got bumped out of a block through no fault of his own because they have so many characters and plot they need to keep track of. But then that felt fortuitous because they could make a whole show about what happened to Josh. Well, that's something we've said before that we believe the magicians does very well. They have so many characters that they have to take care of and give time and make the fans still interested in them. And I think they do a really good job. But this season in particular, they've had an additional number of characters that they've had to juggle. But like always, they find a way to loop everything back around. And as we've talked about before, some of our favorite episodes are the ones where the group has to come together and work to solve their problems. That was one of the highlights for me. The positive of this episode was getting them all in on this, even if they weren't physically in the same place at the same time, this fifth key allowed them to unite and work together. I thought it was an exciting way of making that happen. Oh, absolutely. And another thing we preach all the time, they are the strongest when they're together. And that's proven again in this episode. It also forced them to realize that all of their problems and situations feel the most important and the most dire, right? I really liked that point where 
They're using the key to communicate. And Margot and Elliot are saying, our ship is going off the side of an infinite waterfall. We have the most serious problem. Julia's like, I'm over here trying to fix a dying fairy who's in suspended animation. I have the most serious problem. And Quentin has to tell them, Yes, we're all fucked in our own way, like always. But if we do not do this, then the quest is done. It feels that way to all of us. If we all said, I need to focus on my own thing because it's life or death, we would never get on the same page with solving this main quest. And the point of it all is that we do have to work together. Every last one of us, even Penny, needs to sing. Mm -hmm. So I also liked how especially in certain situations, they were using the music of this episode to tell a deeper story about what was happening. It wasn't just music thrown in there so we can have it and because it's fun, which was also a factor and that's great. But for instance, they are telling the story about Josh when the story opens, how this world is great because he feels like he's at the center of things. He's having attention paid to him. And obviously there's the direct analogies between the song Under Pressure and what's happening with all of the characters. The music was a tool. Yeah, but not just the fact that that song fit perfectly with what they were going through. They looped it around even further by making David Bowie, who the song is originally created by, being one of the catalysts of the way Josh feels in life. One of his examples is when his brother invited him to the last David Bowie concert ever in America and then last minute ditched him for a girl. And that's how he feels all the time with this crew. Which does feel like something poor Josh would go through in this universe. Yeah, and let's not forget where we met him in season two. He was alone. Mm -hmm. That group he was with ditched him as well. Yeah. I did kind of wish that we went a little further with the music telling the story of what was happening. When I heard this is an entire musical episode... I almost thought we were going to have very few bits of scattered dialogue throughout, but the rest of it was going to be these songs that kind of portrayed the situations we were in and told a little backstory about our characters. And I understand they had to keep it balanced because if a musical isn't for everybody, maybe that would have turned some people off if it was nonstop throughout the entire thing. But I guess I'm one of those people that maybe wanted more. Yeah, I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum. I hate musicals that every sentence turns into a song. It's like, come on, do you have to sing that you're going to the bathroom? So I thought it was perfect because I really love the progression of the storylines for every episode. And I think they wouldn't really be able to progress or push that storyline if they had to depend on all music, especially since it's not original music, it's music that we know and love in the real world. So there's no way to really push a storyline. And the fact that they ended up finding a key during all this, I thought was very clever. Plus, let's keep in mind, these are all actors and not all of them are trained singers. Mm -hmm. So that makes it even more difficult for the producers. I heard a couple of reviewers talking about that and I can definitely see the sense in that. And of course, we had Jade Taylor on the podcast for an interview recently. So we know that she is trained. This was definitely a moment where she could shine and demonstrate those skills. But I guess it would probably be a little bit more difficult if you were trying to incorporate that with all of the characters, all of the actors. Although I would have liked to hear a little bit more of Elliot singing because I think he's great. Hale Appleman, I'm sorry. Hale, yeah. He's not the character, he's the actor. I really enjoyed those scenes when he was singing. I don't have a trained ear for music. I was a drummer, so it's a little different kind of trained ear. Uh, So I don't know... You know, I can't say his falsetto was amazing, but I can say my ears really enjoyed when he was singing. I thought the high notes were fit 
fit perfectly. And I feel like his look, Hale's look, is perfect for a musical. Just the way he moves and, and sings. As opposed to Josh, where you're like, yeah, you don't really belong in a musical. It's I can not see it in your face. It's not comfortable. Yeah, the, the technicalities of it. But even more so, I think the big thing for me is that when he sings, he brings a lot of emotion to it. So where I was talking about using the songs to push forward the narrative, it wasn't even so much the song choice or what the lyrics were saying in the moment. It was Hale's expression. I could tell that this was a life or death situation and him and Margot were really feeling that in the moment and they were almost saying, this is our last couple of minutes together. We're going to put that forth onto the screen. I bought it. Yet again, I do wish we had spent just a sliver more time devoted to Fillory. I understand we had to keep the majority of it focused on the pocket world because that's what was going on with Josh and and thus the characters that revolved around that. But that's two episodes in a row that we had a much slimmer amount with Elliot and Margot, and I'm very excited for what's happening there. I mean, they almost fell off the side of an infinite waterfall. These are high stakes. Oh, and not to mention Tick being a prick. Yeah, and that was really quickly thrown in there. Such a big revelation that we've been talking about since season two. Yeah, I remember specifically, we did a preview episode to season two before the season started. And one of the things we did was we broke down the Explore Fillery website, which was awesome. I don't think they've updated it this season. And we saw the new characters coming in and we kind of broke it down piece by piece. Who's going to be in season two? And that's when we were first introduced to the Florians, and more specifically, the Council. And that's when we saw Fen. And we were reading the descriptions of, of all of them. And we were starting to say, and Christina doesn't have this background from the books. This is completely different from the books. But we were breaking down the fact that not knowing anything about these characters yet, not seeing season two, these are people that have had control of Fillory. They have been in charge since the last human died. How warming could they possibly be to these new humans coming in and taking over? Tick and all, all of the council needing to now uh, work for them, work under them. We thought that for sure that's a perfect recipe for some angry Florians that could backstab them. But to be honest with you, Tick played such a good role of being the one that, yes, naive at times, yes, made mistakes, but it never felt like he was against them or wanting the worst from them. So they kind of almost made us decide, no, we were wrong there. Yeah, they lulled you into, false, into a false sense of security. And I think that's a lot to do with Ruzwan Manji and his amazing acting. He turned into this sidekick for Margot. And all played to perfection when we think about it later. Naive and unfamiliar with Earth customs? No, he's pretending all of these mistakes were not mistakes. You know, he's been working behind the scenes doing what he admittedly told us from the very beginning he does best. He comes from a family of thieves, tricksters, manipulators. He's done a master manipulation job on Margot, who is a very smart woman. He's he's even got over on her. I think this is a huge revelation what he's telling us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it needed maybe a little bit more room to breathe within the episode. Yeah, perhaps. But so much was going on. And it wasn't in song, so what do you mean it needs more? I thought you wanted more music. Um, I think you could have made that <laughs> into a musical very easily. Like, and, I don't... and Rizwan would have done it amazing. You see him singing? I don't know. Even if he's not 
classically trained. Maybe he's like rapping. We could have made that funny. There could have been yeah. an exchange between him and Margot. Too much for me. I, I love it. I wanted more is the bottom line. Watching that scene again after we know what's about to happen, just like you were saying, what I saw as naivete was not. It was just Tick being an asshole. Yeah. For example, when he goes, good news, you're free to choose the way you're going to die. And I'm like, oh my God, no, he's just being an asshole. And he's having so much fun elaborating on all of these options. I would love to watch back now all of the things that have new meaning. Oh yeah, for sure. And have it mansplained to us <laughs> from the real tick's point of view. So we are already getting ahead of ourselves with talking about like these. Always. Yeah, these things having to do with the episode. Let's back it up for a second because we are going to give more information sprinkled throughout coming from Gamble and McNamara related to this episode. We found this in an article by Entertainment Weekly from an interview they did with them. They described how a normal episode can take anywhere from three days to two weeks to put together start to finish, whereas this episode took six weeks. They said it stopped the writer's room. It literally stopped all forward momentum. And luckily, they had most of the other episodes finished up by that point, so they could take the time to work on it. But there was a lot of work that went into it. We do see that there are four main songs that we used over the course of the episode. The first was Wham Bam by Clooney. That was Josh's opening song. I didn't necessarily like that song. I was a little concerned at the beginning of this episode, and I was like... Uh oh, they might lose me on this one. It was a little rocky. I think some of that had to do with perhaps when they were looking at the song selections, they knew they had to have under pressure. Mm -hmm. Right. This is actually the one they had been thinking about for a long time. They wanted to put into an episode somewhere. And then they kind of built off of that. What other songs do they need? The rights to these things cost a lot of money. So I think they were forced to maybe narrow the selection on the other songs to what was practical. But still fit in the storyline. Absolutely. The next one, though, they were very firm on that they wanted to do this All I Need is the Boy by Gypsy with lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. That's, of course, the song that Katie sings later. And it's a rarely heard version of All I Need is the Girl. The big one was Under Pressure by David Bowie and Freddie Mercury. And then we had a little bit of car wash with Josh towards the end. But of course, it ended with under pressure. And that was the crescendo that we really needed. And it left me with a really good taste in my mouth looking back on the episode. And before we talk plot, I also have new faces and places. For places, we talked about this new pocket world. We also had the infinite waterfall, a plummeting waterfall of freezing waters and razor sharp rocks one of the many methods of execution Tick proposes. For creatures, we had the wombat, which we heard about last episode, but Tick explains a little more. This is the judge that he thought Elliot and Margot picked for them. Again, in hindsight, this wasn't a mistake when Margot said they wanted trial by combat and he uh, misheard. Wombat. Mm-hmm. We also got the Traumicer, a shape-shifting demon that's capable of creating the pocket world. This place where all your dreams come true so he can feed off your energy and happiness. You know, much like anything that has to do with magic on TVs and movies, there's parts of things that I would really enjoy, but they go to the extremes because the reality is it probably wouldn't make you happy. But in thinking about this, if I could have the ability to go in and out of a world like this whenever I needed, 
I think that would really be awesome, <laughs> especially if it like froze the real world. So after this podcast, we have to go to sleep to wake up early tomorrow. If I could freeze that, go to this world that would be perfect for me and just hang out, do whatever I want, then come back and be re-energized for the real world, that would be amazing. Yeah, except you can't have one minute of real conversation or the crowd will quite literally beat the shit out of you. Well, yeah, I'm saying my <laughs> world wouldn't have that. My oh, okay, world, gotcha. It would be less of a tragedy or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't be stuck there either. I guess virtual reality might kind of be that for us in the future as it gets better and more affordable. Obviously, it wouldn't freeze the real world. So that's going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. But it would be an escape once VR is, you know, 10 years from now, you can go anywhere and it'll feel pretty real. But then you would never co- want to come back to the real world. That's the consequence of that one. Is that so bad? I think that's a whole other conversation <laughs> for another podcast. podcast. We have one more new thing, and that is the fifth key, a key that links the whole group together, the unity key, made for a quester who always feels left behind. And that is something we're going to explore a little more later. We've been talking about these keys in depth, who they belong to, which characters they are challenging in what ways, and what keys we still have left because we only have two We figured it out by going through our chart, which of those two they are. We do not know what they're going to do. So that'll be for speculation later. This key is basically like Google Hangouts. It's like eight-way calling. (laughs) Yeah. What's interesting, though, it allows them to converse, but that power stops. Once they've solved the situation, we see that they can't talk to each other anymore. So can it continue to bring them together in other ways? Will they be able to have that power, but only when they are in desperate need of it Mm -hmm. when the circumstance calls? Because with the truth key, we see they can pick it up at any time and it will show them what's really there. This key doesn't feel like that. We haven't seen them go back to the key for greater magic to use it like that. So they all seem to kind of have their brand, their flavor, what they can do and when. Now, before we dive headfirst into the plot, We want to thank all the new Patreon members and let you guys know that this weekend, Christina and I will be doing last month's gear giveaway to the new Clatchers and to all the current Clatchers. So we'll have two more winners coming your way. And remember, if you join the Coffee Clatch Crew Patreon page this month, you will be in next month's drawing for the free gear giveaway. We'll also be recording our bonus episode this weekend, and it's very exciting. We're going to give you behind-the-scenes clips of the Jade Taylor interview. And we have a lot of other really interesting topics to talk about. Just to give you a brief overview, the Barbara Streisand and her cloned dogs. And I took a look into the science behind that, and we'll give you a full detailed background on that. We'll also discuss the Doctor Who new logo as the regime is changed. We have a new doctor. We have a new main writer. We have a whole new team coming in, and they're going to change it up a bit for us. And as usual, we will go over what else we're watching, what we are enjoying in the TV and movies, and why. And a little thing about Movie Pass: If you're using, and I know a lot of our Clatchers are using, it's something you should know about them. They may be tracking you. And we'll discuss that this weekend. We were going to sign up for that, and we haven't yet. Maybe that was wise. <laughs> so you get all that, plus movie reviews, if you become a Coffee Clatch crew member. You know the details. You've been listening to us for a while, so we won't go on and on on what it entails, but we just want to remind you that you don't just get extra content. You're helping Christina and myself out 
giving us a little bit of money so that we can continue to deliver free podcasts and pay for bandwidth. So if you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, that's one of the best ways to do so. Now, jumping into our plot, Christina is going to sing every portion of it for you. I do not think you would enjoy that. No, we're going to split it up again. We will bookend it with what's happening in the pocket world and with our characters of Quentin, Katie, and Alice. And in between, we'll talk about the break bills location with Julia and Fenn and Fillory with Margot and Elliot. Man, our crew has gone through so much just this season alone. Never mind all three seasons. Think about what a different place all of our characters are in. Now. As opposed to where they were. A couple episodes ago, as opposed to a couple episodes prior. It's insane what they've been going through. Quentin and Elliot lived an entire life. And by the way, the ramifications of that have not yet rippled out. We will talk about that later in Clatcher's comments. There are some residual questions. But we open up at the physical cottage where Quentin wonders if they should have waited longer for Harriet and Victoria. But Katie says they couldn't have survived what happened in the mirror bridge. And Alice pretty much confirms that's handled very quickly, almost a throwaway comment. But we're all very anxious where we left off from last episode. What is going to happen to these two characters? Can they survive? That's a good question. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll find out next episode. Alice seems to think the odds are pretty bad, but they leave us hanging. They don't come back to that. Quentin very quickly moves on to ask Alice what she was doing at the library in the first place. She tells him honestly she was working on her grand unified theory of magic, but they don't have time to talk more because Quentin's bag starts to shudder. The book is talking to them again. It opens to a line of code that Alice recognizes as medieval music, and Katie begins to play it on the piano. Yeah, it was more of a music sheet, which was pretty cool. It was a sexy centerfold. (laughs) (laughs) So real quick, let's discuss this Alice thing. We know that Q was the one who physically saw her. So I think he is the least likely to trust her for a while, at least. And I believe it's very evident in this episode, especially at the end when she goes to grab the book and Quentin's like, are you kidding me? I'm the narrator. (laughs) That's my book. Know your role. I've been reading this shit. Well, we haven't trusted Alice for quite a while. We've been suspect what she's up to. We know that her quest for power and magic has not stopped since she has transformed back from a Niffin. The library has offered some great temptations as far as knowledge is concerned, but their prices are steep. And last episode showed us a glimpse of maybe where Alice winds up in the future or an alternate past when she does dealings with the library. So he's right to be concerned. I again was thrown a little off track because Alice seemed to join in with the group this time and help on the quest in a way that we haven't seen her do in a long time. Not that she had much of a choice. She was stuck in this world. <laughs> she even tried to use locator spells to figure out where they were and couldn't. But it, it made her feel like a part of things. And I wonder if that sparked something emotionally for her. Anyhow, once Katie plays the piano, the room transforms to a different cottage. They don't recognize anyone except Todd and Josh, who breaks out immediately into a musical. I love the way they brought us into this world. I thought it was very organic. Katie starts playing the piano, and then the music starts. Piano disappears, their books, their keys, that all disappears, and in comes Josh. Well, not just Josh himself. All the pictures on the wall and the paintings have been replaced with Josh's face. The The clocks clocks. say 420. (laughs) What a great way. Again, you don't just have to use exposition. 
or characters telling you something through the visual imagery of what's been created around you through the song that Josh chooses to sing by the way that everybody carries him down the staircase (laughs) and breaks into dance around him. It is a new world order. We get that immediately. He tells us there are no rules here except be the vibe and have fun. Of course, there are consequences to not being the vibe. One of the bigger things we learn is they have magic. Early on, we don't know why or how they have magic, and we do figure out that it's limited. It is small in what it can do. Yep, just has to do with partying. As we've seen it every time before, it's like a drug for our magicians when they learn that they're able to do it. And Quentin creates this magical smoke munt jack that sails across. (laughs) And the crowd is very pleased with that. Not in this section, but later on, they did make a comment how everything felt brighter. Even though it was the same cottage visually, everything felt brighter. Everything felt better. Yeah, when they transitioned and they kind of turn away from the piano, all the colors of the room do become bright, brighter. The color of the couch, the color of the posters on the wall. It's a symbolic transition, which you have to do for us as the viewer because it's the same space. We need to know we've been transported somewhere else. Not just that, I think it's par and course of what this demon does to trap you in there. He makes you feel comfortable. He makes you feel like this is the place to be. Yeah, that's again, though, a hard transition to make because we have seen the physical cottage in the past be kind of a party hangout space. So what's to say that that's not happening again? It wouldn't be fitting considering what's happening right now and break bowls being sold and everything else, but you never know. They really had to kind of spell that out for us, and I think they did a good job. They also have to highlight it's different because in the next scene, we're going to see Julia and Fenn return to the cottage, and they are going to take the key. So it's sort of like, how are they both in the cottage at the same time, and they both had the key? Really disorienting for Christina and myself because as this scene started to progress, our power went out from the storm, Mm. and it took us like a good 10 minutes to get everything back up and we missed so much and we couldn't get to our DVR, which is cloud-based for another 10 minutes. So we were completely lost for a little bit until we could go backwards in our DVR. We missed the opening Josh musical song and when we came back, it was with Juliet and Fenn. (laughs) So those are the exact questions that were going through our mind. How are they in this place? What is happening? But of course, yes, when Juliet and Fenn walk in, the cottage is kind of darkly colored again. Nobody's in there, very quiet. And Julia is thinking aloud they need to help the fairies. But Fenn says they are all evil, despite what they just saw and how bad that was. She doesn't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I was surprised by that. I thought that we had turned Fenn's mind around when she saw Skye with her leg cut off in last episode. But it looks like she still is not yet fully convinced. Which is crazy because she's normally the naive character, right, in Fillory? And she was a little crazy at the beginning of the season. And now to see, and it's understandable, how she is now. She's very stern and uh, hard to change her mind. Well, it reinforces with us how deep those wounds were. She lost her child. She found out very recently it was confirmed that that child died. Uh, The reason she was crazy the beginning of this season, she mentally couldn't cope with that. I'm actually surprised to see her so strong and resilient so quickly after what she's been through. And she did have that sort of honest conversation in the last episode where she explained to Alice about what happened. She's been talking to Julia about it. I like her paired up with both Alice and Julia. 
I think that they are helping each other as they're going through these journeys to heal from their respective situations and traumas. And how amazing to see Julia finally being able to move on from what she's gone through and being stuck internally in that place where she can't move forward to saying, I want to help somebody else. I have this power. I'm accepting it. I want to use it to help them. Yeah, we saw this coming a couple episodes ago. We realized she's finally embracing the power that Persephone has given her. I'm really glad that we got to this place with her. I know that we had to see the whole journey and it's realistic to have her need to work her way back up to that. But it's much more fulfilling when we get powerful Julia able to harness that and work for the good. So she takes the truth key so that she will be able to see Sky. She goes to talk to her. We see right away Sky has difficulty getting up off the ground. She has this high boot on and we assume underneath is a prosthetic, which surprised me because I had a very different theory coming out of last episode of what could be going on with her getting her leg caught off. Yes, and I'm not ready to abandon that theory. I think maybe it just takes a little while to grow back. I think now that she's found that she can do magic and Julia's going to take that necklace off, if she can, she'll be able to bring her leg back for sure. But I, I think you still might be right in the fact that the limbs grow back eventually. I hope so because it brings up a lot more questions that I have difficulty answering if this is a permanent situation. As we said last time, how do you explain the level of control and where she continues to get the dust from? Wouldn't she have to keep getting new fairies? And maybe she has, but it seems like Sky has been with her for quite a while. Yeah, she kept saying, I have a limited amount. And when Julia found the second key way back a couple episodes ago, there was two fairies. If you notice, we've, we're only seeing one now. Maybe that fairy's gone now. And maybe she was, you know, the limit is I'm almost out of fairies. Yeah, I don't mean to be morbid, but this can kind of go one of two ways, right? It's limited in that when you cut off these parts, God, that's so bad, but these limbs, they don't grow back. And so eventually you need to get new fairies or they do, but it takes a while. And so you have to wait. You can only take so much in order for the fairy to be able to keep regrowing before you can harvest more. I mean, either way, this is terrible. It's awful. It's not fairy good. Oh, boy. (laughs) But the level of control and manipulation is so strong, it takes a lot still to get Skye to come over to their side. Julia explains, You clean their homes, you cook their food, and they take your leg and grind it into powder to snort so they can do magic tricks. I want to help you get out of here. No. No, this is the way. We can't do magic. We're helpless. The McAllisters, they protect us. No, the McAllisters use you. And they hurt you. Julia comes up with what I think is a good plan. She instructs Skye to meet her in the lab where she will prove that Skye can do magic of her own. And that will show Irene's been lying to them. In the lab, Fen helps Julia set up but still doesn't feel good about it. When Skye gets there, Julia tries to show her the hand movements to a simple spell, but it doesn't work. Fen has this amazing comment. She says, maybe Julia's teaching it wrong. After all, the fairies in Fillory don't have to do all those hand movements. They are magic. They don't have to access it. Man, I was cheering out loud at that comment. We were very recently discussing how you and I both kind of came to this conclusion at the same time. The way the humans have to access Mm -hmm. magic 
feels unnatural. I spoke about how the magicians in the books, it was described at great length how they had to train their hands, build their strength, learn how to contort their fingers into these awkward positions so that they could tut. It all felt like they were looking for an end around, a way that they could get to this magic, which initially perhaps wasn't for them, wasn't open to them. Whatever it is, the magical creatures are able to do it in such a way that feels a lot more organic. So Fenn describes how fairies and fillery can just kind of do do it, it, wave a hand or whatever it might be. And I think we went even further into what that would mean for humans in the future. But even just getting this much and realizing that we're on the right course is very promising because if it does turn out to be where Alice figuring out the meaning of magic would make it where we no longer have to uh, manipulate magic to use it and it can just be a part of us, that's very promising. And also scary because we know that a lot of humans are just not worth it. They're assholes and they'll ruin it. Right. I think what's so exciting about this theory crafting and when it pans out is what it means for the overall end game. I think my concerns kind of go back to the original thoughts of if humans weren't supposed to have this in the first place, are we closing off their end around? Is there a way to get to that ultimate magic or were they never supposed to have it in the first place? We know this magician's world is pretty dark, so I don't know that we're going to wind up with our fairy tale happy ending, but I certainly like how all of the pieces are kind of falling into place, and especially where it concerns Julia. So next, when Skye tries it differently, using her own magic and just thinking about what she wants to create, she's able to make this rose. It's quite beautiful for a moment. We see it starts out with that kind of black swirling dust. And it gave me that same feeling as when I saw Julia doing it. After she snorted some fairy dust, yeah. Right, this is just different. And we do see here that it's a different way that magic is created from what we've seen before, almost like sand coming together to build something. Unfortunately, it only lasts a couple of seconds before we see that Sky is uh, shaking, almost convulsing and She starts bleeding from her eyes, her nose, her mouth. Julia is able to use her magic to freeze her in time. Just kind of pause this situation. Her eyes went white. So cool. Yeah, and Fenn says in a minute how amazing it was that Julia didn't need to use her hands. She made magic through her eyes. And and Julia kind of jokingly says, I must be leveling up. So cool. She did say every time she uses magic for good, she gets more powerful. They've kind of underplayed it because Julia is underplaying it herself right now. But man, I've started to feel here, what could she do? Where could this go with Julia? It's really cool now that she's starting to tap into it. And I know that it feels like a side quest right now. And this is what keeps getting me frustrated with Julia. Even when it's going in a positive direction, she seems to be doing all this stuff with the fairies and Fen, how does that fit into our overall storyline? But we know that the fairy thing is really going to keep evolving and become central to the main story with all of our characters. And at that point, the puzzle pieces will connect back together. And I think Julia will be essential. Well, absolutely. When we broke down the main poster for this season, we've been discussing how Julia is the main character. She's the centralized character. And we knew eventually she would have to be one of the most important magicians as far as season three is concerned. And now we're already seeing the progression. It has been, since the beginning of this episode, Julia doing her own thing, sometimes with Alice, dealing with her issues with it. And then we see her 
learning to cope with it and embrace it. Now we see her starting to go into the fold with one of the main through lines for this season, the fairies. So she's working her way towards the centralized character that we know she's going to be. Not even just working her way towards it or learning to build up, level up her magic before she gets to whatever that big thing is she has to do. But I think her healing these fairies is going to ripple out and have repercussions later on, perhaps good ones. Because she saved them, that creates a massive difference for our characters over in Fillory. Yeah, let's go through that now. I believe that this is the key to getting the Fairy Queen back on our side. And we have been back and forth, back and forth. Is the Fairy Queen actually bad? No, she's not. Yes, she is. No, we've been played around with mentally, which is on purpose. And one of the coworkers I always discuss this show with has been saying from day one, the Fairy Queen is not bad. And I've I been think saying right. that too. Come yeah. on. I, I kind of have been firm on there's something more to what's going on oh, with absolutely. her. absolutely. Yeah, and the ending scene, I think two episodes ago, when she says, I can't help you anymore. Mm. I don't think that was just tongue-in-cheek. I think that was legit. She was actually trying to help in a weird, demonish kind of way, but... A way that didn't make sense to us because we didn't know. Mm-hmm. We didn't know the whole picture and we didn't have all the facts. And maybe she was willing to be kind of ruthless, but we see that is this world of Fillory. I mean, look now that you learn about Tick, what's going on with him. Yep. Uh, the crazy people of the tribe of the Floating Mountain, even the Lorians. They're violent. They're aggressive. It's kind of cutthroat in Fillory. And with our main creatures not having magic anymore, it's hard to fight back. So I do think that if the fairy queen was just trying to fight for her race of dying people, she has to do what it takes. And I love that later we're starting to see these things come back around to help our rulers, such as the Munchak. And I know we'll get more into that. For sure. So... I think it's safe to say at this point that Julia helping the fairies on Earth will open the doors again to us for the fairy queen and hopefully get that army, the fairy queen's army, on our side working with the humans. And hopefully give Irene a taste of her own medicine because I hate this woman. (laughs) Let's go over to Fillory where Tick explains Elliot and Margot have been found guilty by the wombat And they are free to choose the manner of their execution reserved for royals. By the way, all these great choices. The serrated spoon, the steep climb up Fire Ant Mountain, the stone crush, and of course, the infinite waterfall. Um, I don't want to see what that climb up Fire Ant Mountain looks like. Oh, that sounds horrible. I've had that experience once as a child, and it is terrible. No, this just depicts all the questions I had growing up when watching movies and shows where there was kings and queens that were horrible. I always said, why doesn't everyone just rebel against them? And for some reason, no one ever did. And I guess this is what happens when the kingdom just decides we've had enough of you and we're going to actually torture you to death. All the clever ways they come up with. And Margot, thinking she's being clever in turn, chooses the one that seemingly will take the longest. Tick explains in great detail what that's going to entail. Now, did they want to go for one that would take the longest to give their friends time to save them? Figure out a way out of this anything. Mm. They're stalling, really. But that doesn't help because moments later, Tick finally reveals himself. He won't be helping them escape or with anything for that matter. I will not be helping you escape. In fact, I will not be helping you with anything ever again. Wait, what? You're the worst. 
the absolute worst rulers Fillory has ever had. Oh, come on, Martin Chatwin. All of you, children of Earth, the divine prank of Ember and Umbers. And you know what's truly infuriating? How you always really believe you have the right. Look, we didn't make the rules here. We don't even like them. Good, as they no longer need to be followed. No magic means no more idiotic Earth rulers, and I get my kingdom back. After all, he ran Fillory for years. So he asked the Munchak to take them to the waterfall where he will throw the rulers on a life raft to die, at which point Fillory will be free again. He thinks the Heartwood is agreeing with this sentiment? Yeah. Right away I felt, okay, there was a reason why a couple of episodes ago they made it a point to show how important it was that Margot had decided not to let that ship uh, get... Raped? Let's yeah. just call it what okay. it is. Yep. <laughs> Um, and we knew that had to be important. We thought specifically for the Fairy Queen, which I still think it is, or was, until she gave up on them. But right away, that came to mind. And then also, thinking further, they had planned on letting the ship go down with it, or is it because the ship didn't stop that it went down with it? Yeah, they wanted to put them out on a life raft. Life raft, okay. And for Tick to stay on the boat. All right, so never mind, because I was thinking, well, why would she, why would the Munjack be okay with dying as well. You know? Yeah, but when he realizes that the Munchak is just going to keep going, he decides to he bail on his own quick. life raft. Yep. Seeing his true colors, I really don't like him anymore. Although it's kind of interesting, again, because of Rizwan Manji as an actor, to see this side of him too. It's exciting character work. It gives you the feeling that we're not going to get a lot of him in the future, although I feel like we have to as the head of the Florian Uprising. No, I think we will. We'll get... I mean, he's going to be pivotal. He's going to be the one where you have to overtake. You think so? They're going to make him the big bad? He doesn't exactly feel like... Um, no, not necessarily him being the big bad, but it's something that they have to overtake. I mean, it's not just him. It's him and all of the Felorians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we saw they had been dealing with that when they had their carriage overthrown Right. at the end of that episode. And don't forget the Florians were used to Tick and his crew being in charge before the humans came back. So once he's gone and Margot and Elliot are stuck here in this seemingly impossible situation, she starts trying to talk to the Heartwood with no response. It's then that Elliot wonders if Tick was right about them. After all, what gives them the right to rule? And this is the other pivotal point we've been discussing on the podcast are the humans meant to be here? Is it, as Tick says, that they were always this divine prank that Ember and Umber came up with? They're fighting a losing cause and the Florians will never accept them. But we have this same dynamic going on here where Elliot is the one kind of questioning things and Margot is the one to come back and say, no, we've fought hard for this. We can do it. She says when given the chance, they have ruled well and they can make things better if they're allowed to. Now, of course, we know that they're not going to die here, but the circumstance feels really dire. How are they going to get out of this? The boat has passed the point of no return, and we see the edge of the waterfall approaching. That's where we'll pause it now, because we have to go back over to the pocket world, where the group here is realizing every time they get too abrasive, start to try to talk about something real, or just generally are killing the vibe, the crowd turns on them. They know they need to get Josh alone, so Katie agrees to stay and put on a distraction while Alice and Q go upstairs to talk to him. Why was Katie so angry, so out of character in the beginning of that? 
I felt like she was under some kind of spell. We knew that she grabbed the truth key, but I was second guessing myself because I felt like maybe she grabbed the depression key because the way she was acting, so out of character. I feel like she just couldn't go with this. <laughs> she couldn't put on a fake happy persona when the consequences were so serious. She knew this situation was so dire. But once she realizes this is what they have to do to get what they want, they have to put on a show, that's where she's on board and agrees to sing. This whole pocket world is very reminiscent. Oh, I mean, there's some changes for sure as far as having to stay on board or else you get attacked. But it's very similar to the Lotus Hotel and Percy Jackson. Absolutely. And then to go even further, because that was kind of depicting a different story, which is, I think, the original uh story with a Greek story, Homer's Odyssey. Mm. Remember that in school? Yeah, well, it's been a long time, but yeah, I think this is a kind of reoccurring mythology that we hear, the story of this world that entices you and pulls you in. Everything looks really good. It plays to what you were talking about before, that desire to escape and have everything just kind of be happy and fun and stuck in the moment. And if you watched Percy Jackson you'll know the end of that story is you ultimately wind up losing yourself and years and years go by and you don't even realize how you've kind of been sucked in and brainwashed. And same thing with Homer's. Now, that wasn't a spoiler. Please don't write to us all angry. That was not spoiling anything. Yeah, uh, that's promise. a minor point of that, that movie. Back to Katie, she does a cabaret to distract Todd. This is where she sings All I Need is the Boy and she transforms into this very stunning dress. Gamble and McNamara, again, we're talking about how they could use this to tie in some more of her backstory. They said, we thought her mother was a bit of a free spirit. She might have had a year where she decided to be a stripper, and maybe she did this burlesque number. And Katie remembers it, so she recreates the dress. And this was obviously a way for the writers to show Jade's talent, because it's fit for her. I don't think anyone else on the show would have been able to pull that off. Yeah, I think they were kind of looking for a way that they could fit that in there. So one of my minor gripes is I wish they would have gone a little deeper with how this connects to her backstory or says something more about Katie as a character other than just uh, her mom maybe was a stripper for a little while. Mm -hmm. Katie is kind of always one of those characters that I wish we would get more of because she's complex and you could see where there would be a lot of backstory there. She's very complex and she's kind of like the chameleon of this show. She has so many talents. She can kick ass with her karate skills. She can sing. She can just as she easily transform into an elegant yeah. dress or put on a strip tease. Whatever the occasion calls for, Katie can step up to it. But what I really liked here is the fact that she's using this magic to keep the show going. She walks behind the screen and you see her silhouette dancing, but she just goes upstairs and has the act continue on. Oh, I thought that was very clever. And there they are talking to Josh. They wonder why he's there, why this is the physical cottage when he's a naturalist. It wasn't even his house to begin with when he was at Breakbills. This pushes Josh over the edge. So he finally starts telling us the truth. He says that shows that they don't know anything about him. That's about all they know was that he was a naturalist. They've never cared enough to find out more. For instance, he's been texting them for a while now to try to get on board with helping the quest and nobody has responded except for Julia. And I thought that was a really interesting point that they were making about our characters. 
he's upset, he says after he couldn't find Katie, he called repeatedly. He was ditched. He's talking about the time where they went to Bacchus's. Yeah. And there was that other that party. ongoing party, which maybe inspired him that he wanted to recreate those kind of feelings. And he was getting very involved. We were like, oh, he's going to be pivotal in this storyline. Yeah, he wanted to be the Bacchus of his own world, which is kind of what he thought he was doing here. I think a piece of him maybe always knew that it wasn't real, it wasn't right. Perhaps. He still kind of has these bad feelings. We talked about how he has the Bowie poster up and he starts telling the story about when he was young and his brother ditched him for the Bowie concert. So he can't let go of those slights Mm -hmm. and he himself kind of realizes something's not right about the magic there. That's when the group tells him it's not really back. He sees that he can't break out of his bonds. There's a lot of things it can't do and that the longer he stays, they're worried he might not ever want to leave. You can see how this was all a test. And of course, I'm jumping forward. I always do. Because I believe that this demon put that Bowie poster in his room. To taunt him? Well, yeah, as part of the test, like to get him to want to stay there and, you know, kind of put layers on top of everything, emotional layers to keep him there and remind him why him being the center is what he always wanted. Further, he said he was texting and writing all them, and they all said that they didn't receive it. And I believe it's true, because in that world, whatever he was texting and writing wouldn't go out. Because later on, we find out that Julia texted him once they're out of this pocket world. And he's like, oh, well, I was more of an asshole as of late. Uh, Yeah, but I think part of it is they said they weren't receiving it. But really, they just kind of weren't responding because they forgot about Josh. That's the awful truth is that they 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 left him at the party. Right. They didn't care enough. I mean, he says when nobody came back, he was at Bacchus's. And this is when Todd, which we know is not Todd. Todd, not Todd. Came to him and told him about the magic. And that's really what lured him in. We saw at Bacchus's. They were all yearning for magic, but how truly devastated Josh was, that was the moment where Julia showed him she had magic. And Quentin was very upset about that, told her, why would you show him? You're not supposed to be telling anybody about that. And she said she had to do something for him. Her heart just went out to him. And I think that's where that level of affection between Josh and Julia kind of developed a little bit more strongly. But not Todd was able to bring him in to this world, and he had the fifth key, although that's not what's powering what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we found out later it's because he's a demon, he has the power. Yeah, I thought at first for sure that's that key, mm-hmm. right? But it looks like that demon actually presented the key, and the test to get the key was the demon's pocket world. So they still had to go on a quest. No, it wasn't hidden, per se, but you still had to go through an obstacle to get the key in your grasp. It was another kind of illusion that they had to break through, but this illusion was where do you belong? What is real happiness? They kind of all have these central themes that they go back to. Well, I think a lot of storylines do that because that's a human emotion that we all go through constantly in all stages of life. And as we're talking about, this is the point where the group comes to that ultimate realization it's not Todd. Downstairs, they have discovered Katie's trick, so the whole crowd comes up, banging on the door, trying to get at them. Josh still isn't ready to give up on it or accept the truth, but he does agree to lead them off on a trail to create a distraction with his hustle dance. 
And they talked about when he does the car wash song, the symbology of this is him kind of coming to the realization that it's not true happiness. It's the same thing over and over again. And even he couldn't break that pattern if he wanted to. He's not in control of the world. It has been this not Todd, who's a traumiser, a demon, a shapeshifter that's been feeding off of Josh's energy. And they also remember that he had a fetish for the E key. Literally, the E key is the answer. <laughs> when they press on it on the piano, they find it inside. Was that a little on the nose? No, I like that. You like that? Absolutely. I also like the fact that Katie was the one that figured out about the E key. And Alice figured out that Todd was a traumiser. And then Q figured out that they had to work together to get through this. Yeah, this was kind of the start of them working together. They all had a little piece of that. And when Katie picked up the key... A big glaring sign said, Questers, exit here. So this was really the last test. And I think where Quentin's real contribution came in was they were ready to take this exit and leave. Yeah. And he had to stop them and say, no, don't you see what's going on here? This is about us needing to work together. Because we are all listening to each other. We're speaking to each other, all eight of us. That, that's what it is. It's unity. Uh... The quest brought us to a world made for the quester who always feels left behind. The key, the key needs us to work together. Yeah, he was the anchor for all of those long-distance phone calls. Everyone was confused. Wait, I'm so confused. I don't know what's going on, as Penny said. I have no idea what's going on up there. And it's Q who keeps them all centralized on a main thought and figures it out. Yeah, he stops them from bolting out the door. He tells them all to calm down. They have to work together. This is what the fifth key does. It unites them. The stakes are really building because we see that downstairs, Josh starts freaking out as well. He can hear them. And when that happens, the crowd turns on him and starts viciously beating him. This is the first time, I mean, even though you knew they were ready to attack, it all kind of felt fun and silly because the moment trouble came on, they broke out into a new song and dance yeah. and it was okay. But they literally start punching the crap out of Josh. And now you're, you're thinking, wow, we've got to do this right. We're going to be in trouble. Well, I think that's all part of the test. They're just at the point of getting out. This demon makes it a little harder. You know, it's the last door to get through and it's the hardest. Also, I thought it was very well done to bring back and reiterate one last time where Josh has been feeling about all this and remind us this is why Josh is here. Penny says, who is that? And he's like, of course, meaning, of course you wouldn't recognize my voice. Yeah, you don't even know it's me. Talking about how Quentin is the one that kind of has to hold them together. We've been discussing, I won't go into this at length again, him figuring out his role, saying last time maybe it's not for him to be the hero. Maybe it's a different kind of heroic act that he has to engage in, and part of that is uniting them. Gamble and McNamara said, Quentin especially is very cognizant of how these epic quests work and how each step challenges the quester in a different way. From the beginning, the quest has been a group effort. When Elliot is given the first quest in episode one, he's both encouraged and warned by the fact that everyone is part of a whole. That means these different keys, as you try to get them, will challenge you in different ways. So he's able to see this is kind of Josh's challenge for feeling left out. And everybody is going to be required to join in on this or it won't work. That's when they all start singing under pressure. Some of them more quickly. Quentin, Katie, and Alice start off the song. Elliot and Margot come in singing on the ship. It takes a little prompting to get Julia to sing on her end. But mainly it's Penny 
who is the holdout. Who needs to get placed. I thought that was so funny. I love how Katie's like, come on, Penny. It made it more natural because, again, I hate how musicals, everyone just chimes in and it's so like, oh, guys, this was, again, them making fun of themselves or, you know, letting us know they know about themselves. And we're going to have to push Penny because he wouldn't naturally just break into song. It wouldn't make sense. And Katie knows he's the holdout. She doesn't hear him. We could see him kind of grumpily pushing his book cart (laughs) while engaging in this. And it culminates in this big scene. We see the Munchak go over the edge of the infinite waterfall. But Elliot and Margot don't give up. Right up until the end, they're still singing. And so the Munchak lifts itself back up into the air and saves them. So was it the Munchak who saved them or was it the singing? It was the Munchak, but it was Margot's singing that caused him to, him, her to realize. It's got to be a her because ships are female. Oh, no, because there was a male. Oh, no, but, but it, it is a her because she was going to make, that's, that's right. right, with the male ship. I, I think it took Margot being the one again to reach out and yeah. inspire the boat to save them. We see Josh come back to himself and realize. And this is where Todd transforms into his real self, his demon self. He tells them, he said you'd ace it. The only one I'd do this for. It was all a test. Yeah, who is he? Ooh, the big question of the episode, right? Who orchestrated all of this? Yeah, for sure. He's the one that gave the demon the key. And it was all part of this plan. I'm very interested next episode to find out. If it was the big power behind it and I didn't know it was a he, my first guess would probably go to Persephone again because it's the only one of a higher power we know behind this. But a he, man, could it be Dean Fogg who knows that the whole time they need to learn how to work together in order to accomplish things? No, I don't think so. He doesn't have the key. And why would a demon listen to Dean Fogg? Yeah, it's no one we know. But that's all we get there. He kicks them out back to the real physical cottage where the book reveals the next chapter, chapter six. Now, before we go into what the book reveals, let's just talk about the fact that this was a perfect song and a perfect crescendo to the episode. It really put the dot on the exclamation point for me. It made the whole episode worth it. It made it okay that Todd's songs weren't my favorite. They didn't feel natural. They didn't feel right. Even the car wash one just felt kind of like... A little strange, yeah. Yeah. The way they made it, where where they're all singing, was so extraordinary. And what's crazy is knowing how they filmed that, they felt very awkward, the actors, that is, because they'd have to sing the song, they'd have to act it out, but parts of the song are being done in a different location, Mm -hmm. right? So they'd have to all kind of stand there while the music is playing and look at each other until it's their time to go again. And can you imagine how odd it would be on set doing that? But it's okay because, again, it's meant to feel awkward with them all joining in on this song in the show. They're in different locations trying to remotely communicate. As you said, it all worked for me all the way up until this point. I was feeling it was a little scattered. I didn't know if there was really a point to having it be a musical. Was it just thrown in there because we wanted a musical episode? Does it really tell us more about our characters, the backstory, the narrative? This point did make it come together for me. It did make it cohesive. I wouldn't say it made me totally thrilled and changing my opinion about the episode as a whole, but I liked the way that we left off. Now, moving into the book, I don't think this is spoiler territory because they did show it in the episode. We paused the show and we wrote down everything that that book chapter said, at least the first page that they did show us. Yeah, so we're going to read that now, chapter six, which says, Across the farthest of rivers, 
through the thickets of forests, to the highest and lowest point of the land, the girl traveled in search of the next key, always keeping in mind what she was fighting for, to save her father, the glorious acclaimed knight whom she'd looked up to her entire life, the man who crushed her dreams of being a knight before they'd even hatched. Along the way, the girl asked every humanoid and creature alike about the key. In a village by a floating mountain, the girl met an old woman who knew where one might be found. She told the girl a tale of a monster that lived deep in the ocean and collected treasure. This creature had obtained the key long ago and keeps it to itself. Legend said the creature would return to the surface only when they were challenged to defend the key by an anointed knight. Yeah, now there's a lot of pieces to dissect there. We've known that this story is following along with the girl trying to save her father the knight and collect the keys, and that this roughly is going to correlate to the quest that our magicians are on. I mean, obviously, a village by a floating mountain has to have something to do with the tribe of the floating mountain, correct? I think so. I mean, there's got to be more of a reason than we've gotten so far for that tribe to have been introduced into the storyline. And don't forget that we left off with the Stone Mother saying she had a weapon that could defeat the Fairy Queen. That's right. Which is very interesting if we are starting to think now that the fairies are not entirely bad and maybe we want to get them on our side. What's going to happen with that? You know, I'm still back and forth. Maybe the fairies are bad at this point, but with Julia saving her children... They become good? I don't know. <laughs> well, we also have the girl meeting an old woman. Yes, and we've been talking about this since the beginning of season two. If you guys recall, I mean, I think I brought it up last episode, so forgive me for repeating myself. Quentin gave an old lady in Fillory a vial of his blood. And we kept saying there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason for that. And all of season two, they never went back to it. And it's almost all of season three so far, and not a word about it. But... Unless we're just putting that together because we want it to be true. The girl met an old woman who knew where one might be found. That might be the old woman. It could be. We know they're going to have to traverse probably a great distance. The beginning opens up across the farthest of rivers, through these forests. Maybe they might find her along the way. She's going to tell us that she found the key from a monster that lived in the ocean and collected treasure. That confused me because that sounds like the dragon we already met that was hoarding over his treasure and gave us the key that Poppy had. I mean, he did come up out of the ocean and had the key that he'd been keeping to himself. Yeah, perhaps, but I think it just says creature would return to the surface. I don't know. You might be right, but um, if it's an opportunity to create a new creature... Well, it must be. Why would we go back to that same one? We've already right. gotten the key from them. It's just... A little bit bizarre, but it's going to return only to defend the key. So one of our magicians is going to have to kind of take on yeah. this creature. Is it uh, going to be a female because in this story it's a young girl? Well, that would only make sense if you look at what's going on with our keys. And this is a good point to get into that. We have encountered five keys so far. If you look at those images that we talked about a little while back that the magicians put out of all of our characters holding on to their respective keys, you can see what the symbol on each one looks like and which matches up with which character. So judging by that, we know that we've found number one, the illusion key, which belongs to Elliot. Number two, the truth key, which is Julia's. 
Number three, the key to greater magic, which Alice is holding. Number four, we don't really have a name for it, but the key that creates the depression monster. That's interesting in the image both Josh and Penny are holding the key with that same symbol. And number five, the unity key that we just found that Quentin is holding. That leaves us with Katie and Margot yet to find their keys. It's a little hard to describe the symbols that are on theirs. We talked about Margot's and how it vaguely kind of looks like the male-female symbols imprinted on the key. Well, going by that, and this is completely a guess, I'm thinking this is definitely a fillery quest, and I believe it's going to be Margot then. Because it would be awkward if Katie now all of a sudden, who hasn't been in fillery all season is now the one questing in Fillory. I think it would fit better if it's Margot doing it. And also that would kind of make sense with what she's been dealing with. We've been seeing a little bit of that male-female power struggle, at least in her own mind, where she tells us that Elliot has kind of had things given to him a little more easy, his power, his authority as a ruler within Fillory, whereas she has had to fight for it. And she thought she had finally found it and didn't want to give up on it. We also see kind of a big theme that had been going on this season was her getting married, if that was going to be to Prince S of Loria or the tribe of the Floating Mountain. And that's kind of something she's had to push against. So I think both the tribe and Loria are going to come back into play before the end of the season. Katie's key, I really have no idea. If you look at it, it's more squarely shaped. It has kind of a zigzag symbol on each side with a line crossing through it. I don't know a lot about symbology and can't come up with any ideas for that. To me, it kind of resembles the feminine shape. A little, I was thinking, the silhouette. Yeah. We were also talking about if the keys would kind of relate to the types of magic we know about in looking at the Breakbill's houses and the different disciplines. There are some rough correlations There are only six categories there, not seven, but that would kind of make sense if the last key is going to be something big and grand that encompasses all of magic, if you will. And I think given Katie's kind of penchant towards physical magic, physical approaches to these situations, we can kind of believe that's going to be a part of her challenge. But those are the two people we can expect to have their challenges coming up in the next few episodes. We went through our questions for the episode as we reviewed, but to reiterate, are Harriet and Victoria dead? Gone? Stuck in the mirror bridge? What's going on with them? What's happening really with Irene's fairies? Are they having parts of them permanently taken? Are they killed or do they die when they're no use? We forgot to mention that in that pivotal moment when Skye's necklace started shaking, Julia put it together that it's something Irene rigged up so that if they try to do magic, they are killed on the spot. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing that she was able to, again, without using her hands, cure Sky. Yeah, we think so. Now, I'm wondering if she can take that necklace Necklace off. off. Yeah, so that Sky will be able to help her. And if it does eventually kill them, where does she get more fairies from? You know, there's a whole lot to this process we don't know yet. Yeah, there's got to be more fairies on Earth. And probably all of the bigwigs, all of the board probably have their own fairies. Maybe. I don't know. Mm, Could be. Or Irene's just hiding more. Could be that too. (laughs) What are Margot and Elliot going to do now? Sailing back on the Munchak, what is their next move? And what was the demon talking about when he said he's the only one I'd do this for? 
That wraps up our review and takes us into our rating on a scale of one to 10 keys. Jason, what do you give episode nine? Well, I really enjoyed this episode. Of course, it's not one of my favorites. Again, they're doing it to themselves. They're making some of these episodes so damn good that they're just (laughs) battling themselves. So I'm going to give this one 8.3 keys. I felt Katie's music was awesome. And their ending scene when they're all singing together under pressure, one... It's a great song, very well done by them. It all fit perfectly, and we, you and I love when the group is working together, even if it's from a distance. Yes, I agree with all those positives, and I think I've kind of gone through some of my negatives on it, wishing that some of the earlier songs had a little more tie into the character connections. I was feeling a little bit scattered and unsure for the first half of the episode. I liked how they built up the remaining portions, the tensions, and brought the characters together. So for all of that, I'm going to give it an eight keys, which is in line with my episode two, Heroes and Morons. And moving on to our MVM, Most Valuable Magician. Every week after the episode, we ask our Clatchers on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, who their MVM is. This week was no different. We gave them four options, Katie, Josh, Julia, and Q. One thing to note, at the time of this recording, There's still 17 hours left, so the answers may change, and we do have a close one, so we might be wrong by this. And that's our mistake. We thought we weren't going to have time to to record tonight, and we were going to record tomorrow night. Yeah, and I think it's clear who's coming in third and fourth. It's really first and second that are kind of vying right now. So coming in fourth with 8% is Josh. Oh, poor Josh. It's his episode, and he's only getting 8%. Well, he is one of your favorite characters. And this episode was all about Josh. But in the end, he wasn't the strongest character. It was more all about saving Josh. Yeah. So it's understandable that he wouldn't be the most valuable magician. All about Josh's weaknesses. And I mean, part of that obviously is the group, but Josh really wasn't able to deal with it that well. It wasn't until the end of the episode that they kind of convinced him to come back. So I do understand that. Coming in at third place with 12%, Quentin. He wasn't pivotal as far as the singing is concerned, but I think towards the end of the episode that really brought him to the forefront and made it where we had to put him on the pole. He was the one that figured out the crew had to work together. He was the one that was able to dissect the unity key and basically bring that crescendo scene to light. Yeah, but he did kind of fall into the background for the rest of the episode, so I don't think he stands out in your mind as an MVM. Versus our number three, Julia who's coming in at 38% right now. And she may end up taking first place by the time the poll is over Mm -hmm. because it's very close. Julia makes sense. I'm really glad to see her on there and almost first place, possibly first place, because we've been saying she's been so pivotal in these episodes, but she's kind of been a side story at this point because she's gathering everything together. And again, as she's getting more engulfed into the fold, you know, now she's involved with the fairies, it's inevitable that she's going to be an MVM pretty soon. You can see her side story starting to line up with the rest of the main story and where that's going. And we were also remiss because she has still been fighting herself up until this point. This is really the first episode where she accepts it. She takes this back into her own control and she's willing to use her magic. And coming in first place right now is Katie with 42%. This was her episode. 
it was time for Jade Taylor to shine. She was talented. She was obviously the most talented musically wise. She was sexy in the episode. And she was the one who found the key. She was the one that figured that out. Was willing to do the distraction in the first place to give yep. them time. And very clever to to thinking on her feet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And coming up with the song and the idea and then... Getting Penny to sing. Yeah, that as well. <laughs> but also being clever enough to go behind that screen and use magic to have her continue singing and dancing while mm. she went up and talked to the crew. Yeah, ventriloquism, I think they call it magic. And under this poll... Our Clatchers left us a couple of messages. At Geeky Dior Girl wrote to us saying, I am on the fence between Q and Josh, but Q wins for me because he ultimately had to yell at everyone, dad style, to get them to focus and get the job done. (laughs) Melly says, I agree with Geeky. Quentin figured out how to solve the mystery of the fifth key, but I need to give a shout out to at Jade Taylor and her amazing voice. At Extra Amir said, literally one of my top episodes. Katie killed it. Petition to make The Magicians on Broadway? <laughs> she would love that. At A. Redding agrees, saying Katie killed it. Not only can Jade Taylor brood and knock someone out, she can also crush a solo. Yeah, I think a lot of our Clatchers really love Katie even more now that they got to know Jade Taylor a little more intimately with our podcast. And at Quirky Tanini says, Aw, Josh, I'm sorry, but Katie forever. <laughs> well, that leaves us with our MVMs. Jason, who are you going with? Oh, this is so difficult for me. Mm-hmm. I actually don't have one written down because I still don't know at this point. What's funny is right up until we started recording, I had the same notes written down. Katie or Julia, question mark, question mark. Yeah. Um, I'm going Katie. I got to give it to Katie. I think without her, this episode, this musical episode would not be strong at all. She was the star of this one. Well, that's a good pick, and even though maybe musically on the other end of things, I think Julia deserves it for this one. For everything I've already mentioned, I'm so happy to see where we're going with her character arc. Yeah, it's she's the most exciting as far as what's to come up next. Also, I'm very excited to see how we get Penny out from the underworld. Yeah, he's back to being a bit of a side note again here, understandably so, but I'm nervous. Let's just leave it at that. We have some Clatcher's comments not related to MVM. Jordy emailed with some great questions. He says, I'm loving your Magician's podcast and the show itself, but there's a couple of continuity things bugging me. I'm wondering if it's just me. First, if Ray isn't really Elliot and Fenn's child, then shouldn't Elliot have realized this when he held the key at the end of the Be the Penny episode? That is so clever. I like that. I think you're right. And I was saying, shouldn't Elliot have realized it just because he was suspicious of her from the very beginning? But this just doubles down on that. I didn't even pick that up. Well, the only time Elliot held the key, I don't think Fen or Frey were there. Yeah, it was only I, that moment when Penny, remember the end of that episode? I do think it kind of needs to be in front of you to realize because we see in this episode where Julia goes up to the window... That's right. And at first she can't see anything, and then she kind of holds the key up at the same time looking in and can see Sky. Yeah, she wasn't holding the key at first, mm-hmm. and then she takes it out of her pocket. So yeah, I think, honestly, I don't remember specifically everyone who was in that scene, but I believe Fen and Frey were not there at that moment. Right, because weren't they in the city at that point? Or oh, was yeah. that later? Oh, Clatchers, write in and and help us out. Our memory is going, but that could be a logistic way of answering your question, Jordy. But very clever. Very clever. And the next one, too. 
What's bugging me even more is there seems to be no consequence to Q and Elliot having lived an entire life and remembering it. It seems to have zero impact on their thoughts or actions. In the very next episode, when Q is dealing with the depression monster, he's stressed out about early onset Alzheimer's, but he already got old and knows this doesn't happen. More importantly, why wasn't he depressed or anxious about the possibility he essentially erased the existence of his own child by arranging for Margot to stop them from going to Fillory in the first place? And more generally, how can he not spend even a minute thinking about his own child? Help me understand. Okay, a couple of things. As far as Margot stopping them from going back into the clock, I think we kind of worked out in our own minds and we could be off base. This did happen. It didn't erase it because they do have memories of it existing and it impacts the future events, but it existed in a closed loop parallel reality. So as we kind of conjectured, that world and that child could still be out there somewhere, just not living in the world that our characters are. I don't think they erased him, but are we ever going to see this child again? We weren't sure about that. If there's a way to open that time loop up to our present characters, Either way, we would hope that they're thinking about it. We saw how impactful it was for both Quentin and Elliot at the end of that episode to get the memories back and realized they'd lived a whole life together and it hasn't come up since then. I think maybe there's been too much to do and that's sort of an excuse, but I don't think they're going to drop that. I do think they're going to come back around to the impacts that it has on both their relationship together as well as their independent lives, maybe, for Q, the child. And finally, we had a Twitter message that said, just a note, the library we are seeing in this episode is not the Netherlands, shown as the donuts in space. In episode 7, they call it another planet, but it is not connected to the underworld except by the bookworm. So maybe we didn't express that correctly before, We do know that the library has several branches, and the one we are seeing now is in the underworld. It's not really connected to the library branch, except for it's the order that runs all of this, but they exist in separate locations. And we had talked about the fact that we think the dying world we are seeing is in fact the Netherlands. If this is a little confusing for you because you haven't read the book and don't really have all the background, the Netherlands is... A world. It's a planet unto itself. In the books, it was primarily a planet of fountains that would take you to all of these other worlds, kind of a way station. And on there was a building that was a branch of the library. So a couple of episodes back, when we saw first the dying world with the pieces falling apart, being sucked into a black hole, Then we skipped right to a scene in the library and it looked a little askew. Everything was kind of crooked. We had drawn the conclusion that we believe the world that's dying is the Netherlands because of that shot. But again, we really don't know. That's kind of just a guess. What I was trying to say in relation to the library branch in the underworld, because they are two separate locations, it could still support that theory of it being the Netherlands, and I thought it was interesting the last episode when they gave you the shot of the dying world again and then they went back to our library. So even though it's the underworld branch and separate, I still think they're trying to make the connections for you that that's what's happening. Now, what are the other options if it's not the Netherlands world that's dying? I don't really know. I don't see any way that that could be Fillory 
I think one of our other guesses, which I don't think we really loved, that's why we never really talk about it, is the fairy world, wherever that is. Right, which I kind of always thought was a part of Fillory somehow, but existing on a parallel plane. plane. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thought of the Netherlands was also reinforced in the episode where Elliot has the illusion key and he needs to fight his father and they're stuck in the Netherlands. That's really maybe the best shot we get of that. They're walking around these fountains and the world seems to be falling apart a little bit. It looks... A lot of it, yeah. ...out of sorts. So I, I do maybe think that has been confirmed for us and what does that mean for magic when this world that seems to link them all together is falling apart. But thank you for bringing that up. It's important to keep remembering that that's yeah. a thing. Absolutely. As always, we love our Clatchers and we thank you so much for voting on the poll weekly, for sending us messages, emails, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Keep those coming as we move towards the tail end of season three of The Magicians. And remember that after The Magicians, the CKC podcast is not done. We're going to jump right into Westworld, which we did season one for. And if you haven't watched that show, it's definitely HBO's next Game of Thrones, meaning their next big show that everyone speaks about. It's fun, not just for the material. I remember going into this thinking Western meets science fiction meets all of this other stuff. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy that. But the theory crafting, the excellent acting, the visuals, and mostly the fact that it's another water cooler show. Everybody talks about it. Everybody wants to break it down afterwards. It's a little confusing. A great episode to podcast about so we can try to help break that down for you. If you're looking for the next thing you can move on to and share with a community, we would definitely recommend checking that out. If you need to get caught up, you can go back. We have reviewed every episode from season one, as well as a starter that gives you all of the background, what you can expect from this series. Well, that's all we have for episode nine, All That Josh, but we do have the preview for our next episode with some spoilers. So if you're afraid of that, We'll see you when we review episode 10, The Art of the Deal. For everyone still here, we hear that episode 10 is going to tell us about Quentin and Alice searching the castle for an important object, while Julia and Fenn work on an enemy. Well, we know that Julia and Fenn are going to be confronting Irene, the enemy of all enemies here, and they're going to try to have Skye convince the other fairies to run. Ooh, this so Julia might get MVM of this one, huh? Oh, yeah. And if I named her that, that would be my third. I'm up to two Julias. Uh-oh. I got to watch out here. A victim of your own rule. <laughs> yes. From that same Entertainment Weekly interview article, thank you very much, by the way. You guys had such great information this week. Gamble and McNamara said, I think it's an understatement to say there's a lot coming up with the fairies. Candace Kane has been in all season, but you've only seen a glimpse of what she can do. You really get to see her acting in the upcoming episodes. And that's the fairy queen. Mm-hmm. They also told us you will find out who designed this last quest, who the demon did the favor for. It's not someone we've met, but someone we've been hearing about. Someone who's highly consequential for the season. Ugh. Who is somebody we haven't met but have been hearing about? It's that person who gave the key to the demon. 
Yeah, but they say we've been hearing about as though this is oh. not the first time they've talked about a character that we haven't met yet. And I can't think of anyone that fits that bill. If you guys have any thoughts or theories on that before next episode, please email us, tweet us. We would love to hear it. And Quentin and Alice searching the castle for an important object. I don't know that that's going to be the key because it feels like they had to go on more of a quest than just searching the castle. So I wonder what they could be looking for. And we've got Alice and Fillory together with Quentin. That's exciting. Oh boy. A lot's going to go down. I'm very excited. The art of the deal. Hmm. Well, they have to make a deal with the fairies. Another one? Or a deal with... DeLoreans? The floating mountain peeps. Or, or the floating mountain. That's another yeah. one. The floaters, DeLoreans. So many <laughs> options out there. I can't wait till next week. And you guys know where we will be. If you haven't done so yet, follow us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew, and check out our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com, to get a look at all of our other podcast channels and also to take a look at our Patreon page. And if you feel so inclined and you need to buy some stuff, you know Amazon's the place to do it. We have an Amazon link there. Click on that, do your shopping, and Amazon gives us some money. doesn't cost you any more, just helps us out. And check out the gear that we have on our gear page while you're doing that. Don't forget, you might have the possibility to win a free item of CKC merchandise. If we get up to 100 reviews before the end of the season on that channel, we are going to put everybody that left a review into a raffle and pick a name. We are now up to 50 reviews. Thank you for everyone who left new ones, including Tommy Wall, keep up the great work. Leper, who said, I love this podcast. They really take their time working through the episodes and diving into different theories. And Lucolia, I just found this podcast and enjoy listening to the past episodes when I'm on the train to help remember all that's happened. I read the books and like hearing both sides of the takes on their show. So thank you so much. That means we're halfway there to getting 100 reviews. Ooh, but only four episodes left. So if you like what you're hearing, go on there and leave a rate and review. It will boost up the chances on the raffle, but also help everyone else to find the podcast, everyone that wants to hear more talk about the magicians. Patreon members, keep an eye out this weekend for this month's winners. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.